Uh, if you've been around Moraine Valley for the last couple of weeks, we have been in this series that we've been calling Mis- uh, Misfit Christmas or Christmas for Misfits. And what we've been looking at <clears throat> is uh, in the Christmas story, right, in Matthew and Luke, uh, we have these accounts where God shows up to people who don't really fit our expectations. He shows up through people who we wouldn't assume God would still be hanging around with. Uh, he invites people that we wouldn't think would be the ones to get the invitation. Uh, and then uh, we've got Jesus who shows up. And in a lot of ways, what we're going to talk about today is that he comes as this kind of misfit savior. What I mean is, uh, is he shows up with different expectations, or he shows up different than what was expected. Not that he doesn't fit God's plan, but that he doesn't fit ours. And so as we go through, I want us to take hold of and be reminded uh, that oftentimes what we're looking for God to do and who we're looking for God to be uh, is different than how God shows up and what he knows we need. And so as we go through, I want us to start with Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Isaiah, uh, leading God's people or or helping remind them of what's to come, says this in chapter 9, verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And Isaiah leads us in this moment, and we're going to talk about the light that shows up. But also, first, let's talk about the darkness that he showed up to. I think for us, uh, it's helpful to be reminded not just of uh, the precious, if, if you've got this in your mind, you know, the, the, the really, uh, um, you know, simple, kind of cleaned up uh, nativity scene that everything looks great and, you know, uh, Mary and Joseph are just smiling. I'm trusting that they were smiling on the first Christmas night too. Um, but it looks nice on like our, you know, uh, stained walnut cabinet, right, uh, in a pretty clean house with not that much dust. Uh, I love as we look through this scene, what we see is, is that there's, there's mess involved in it too, that he didn't just show up to an oh holy night, but it was to an oh dark world. And in the same place, Isaiah tells the Christmas account by setting the stage of the spiritual environment that Jesus was born into, people walking in darkness. Get the image? Uh, living out our days and walking through our lives, uh, not able to see clearly, having confusion and disorientation, not knowing what truth is because we can't see it. Not only that, but he also says uh, people living in a land of deep darkness. We know about that, but so has all of humanity. Sometimes we look at where we are and we think there's a uniqueness to it. There's a uniqueness, but it's always been dark since Genesis 3. We have Jesus, born of a virgin, placed in a manger, and the shepherd's angel choir and invitation. We need to understand the darkness that Jesus was entering into. Maybe you walked in carrying with you a season of darkness. Christmas isn't always the best season for a lot of people. Some of you are carrying darkness because a lot has happened. There's pain in your past. There's guilt from your life, shame from your actions. Maybe you're in a season a current season of darkness that has deep roots to what has happened to you and who you've been in the past. For some of you, that darkness has to do with the fact that a lot has been lost. 
people, some of us, for the first time in your life that you will not see tomorrow on Christmas because of loss. And that darkness carries heavy. Maybe it's job loss or financial loss or loss of dreams or expectations. You're carrying some kind of darkness because of deep mourning of great loss. Maybe it's just that a lot's going on. Uh, stressed and uh, about doing everything, being everything, making everything. You're in a season of darkness because you know that if you don't do something, everything will fall apart, yourself included. Maybe you're in darkness because when you look around at all you can see is everything that could go wrong or everything that perceived is going wrong. Maybe uh, the darkness is what's actually blinding you. As you see the evil, you see global events and political issues, you see wars, injustice, violence, and you're not alone. Not only are there others in this room carrying some of that darkness with or in us, but history has been saturated by people living in darkness looking for some kind of light, some kind of hope, or some kind of peace. What I want to remind us is, is if we are children of God, if Jesus is our Savior, we view the world with hope. And sometimes we need to be reminded why we have what we have to be hopeful for and why we are able to carry it. Sometimes God's people can see the world in all of its darkness rather than walking in this light. The problem we face is that who God has sent or given to us that hope or peace, we dismiss that light looking for something more concrete, more real, more tangible. And it shows up in ways like this. We'll say, yeah, 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 I know Jesus came, yeah, I get all of that, but what would really help is if someone in Washington, blah, 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 blah. The real answer to the problem is something else. Jesus and. Church, beware. When you think Jesus and anything is going to be the solution, Jesus is always enough. If you were honest, we might even say Jesus is nice, but I'm looking for something or someone that's actually more effective. And this is why Jesus becomes this misfit Messiah, not because he doesn't fit God's plan, because he doesn't fit ours. Even the people Jesus showed up to still wanted him to be a lot of things that he didn't come to be and do a lot of things he didn't come to do. To be the king they wanted, to rule the kind of kingdom they were looking for, or to save them from the issues that they wanted. But Jesus didn't fit their desires, he fit God's desires. He didn't fit our preferences, but he did fit our needs. Can I ask us to somehow gather around the manger once again to get to know the Messiah? that God sent before we continue searching again for some other savior, the, the one we need's already come, and that's who we've come to celebrate and worship, because he's worthy of it. Nothing else is, and no one else can. We will be in the Gospel of John today, not a traditional Christmas section, but it is a Christmas story. At the end of John's writings, if we were to fast forward all the way to the end, which if you're that kind of movie watcher or book reader, we're not friends. But in this case, the book's been out for 2,000 years, so if you don't know how it ends by now, it's, this isn't a spoiler alert. In John chapter 20, verse 30, John ends his gospel by saying this, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. I want to find John when I get into heaven and ask him about those. Like, what didn't make the cut, you know? I feel like we're full of a lot of good stuff here. But then he does say this. But these, right, the stuff that he did write about, the moments he did talk about, the reality that he did describe, these are written 
so that we can believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. John writes the gospel so that we could know who Christ is, believe in who he is, become uh, his children, and that we could have life in his name. Believe is the verb form of faith, which means a confident trust or even allegiance to. John wrote all of this so that as we encounter Jesus, we put our trust of our life in Jesus as Messiah, Son of God. And through that believing, we may have life to the full in Jesus' name. I think it's important for us because a lot of us are walking carrying the name of Jesus but are void of that fullness of life. Despair and darkness we can describe pretty easy, what's going on around us or maybe what's in us, but the light of life, we have to stop for a minute. I want to bring us back to this Jesus story because in the Christmas narrative, this moment where God enters into creation, puts on flesh, and dwells among us, we, we, we have the understanding and the reality of what the light of life looks like when it shows up to us. And so for us, the question might be, are we experiencing more light or are we experiencing more darkness? Are we more in Christ or are we more worried about what's in the world? Jesus was a misfit savior then to those people, and in our culture, he's a misfit savior now. He might be different than what you expected. And we are looking at the story of Jesus, his birth, and why none of it fits, but why it's also perfect. I'm going to ask that you stand. I'm going to read John chapter 1. If you wonder why I'm skipping verse 6 through 8, it's because it's about John the Baptist, and that's for a different sermon. But John chapter 1. I'm going to read 1 through 5 and then 9 through 14. John's beginning goes this way. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of mankind. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not grasp it. This was the true light that coming into the world enlightens every person. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, to, and his own people did not accept him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Lord Jesus, would you remind us the power Father, we've read through Matthew, we've read through Luke, we've, we've named people, we've looked at events, we've seen how angels showed up, we watched how shepherds got their invitation, we've seen as we've read through lists of names of the family that Jesus came through. Father, today would you remind us, uh, not of the historical events that happened in that secession with names, but would you remind us of the spiritual reality and environment that Christ coming into our world carries for us. God, would you, 
would you give us the ability to take hold of the light we have in Christ so that the darkness doesn't consume us? Father, we give all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. Uh, what's interesting is if you read through this, uh, Jesus' name isn't mentioned, yet the whole thing's entirely about him. And in the Gospel of John, you got to think with me here, uh, John, if you've ever read John's writing, John, I'm assuming John's a creative, right? He, he seems to think in different ways and write in different ways. His uh, linguistic ability is far above my own. Uh, and so as we're in, uh, approaching John's letters and John's writing, uh, what we find is him articulating things in a way that's often different from us. I'm a Rosen Columns kind of guy, Right? And sometimes the way John writes has more to do with a uh, paintbrush than it does a spreadsheet. And so as we enter into this, he uses the title or the name or the concept of the Word. And he's not talking about Scripture, though Scripture is the Word. He's talking about uh, that revelation from God that becomes Scripture. Uh, this idea that God uh, would, would have a, a person and a reality and a personality and a way of thinking, and the way that that gets revealed or expressed is his Word. In the Greco-Roman world that John was living in, this was uh, the idea of the word as used in uh, the philosophy of the day and the time. This was a cosmic principle or a guiding reason of philosophical quality beyond human grasp. It was kind of an ideal. But in the Hebrew scriptures, this was the revelation of God's being. The word spoke creation into existence in Genesis chapter 1. Here, the word is not just a Greek ideal or a historical event, it is a person. The Gospel of John was likely written 60 to 70 years after Jesus' ascension. That means John knows the whole story, he was there for most of it, and has decades to reflect on everything that he's seen. And as he goes back and starts the telling of the Jesus' account, he starts by taking us back to the beginning. In the uh, Jewish Torah, uh, the book of, that we call Genesis uh, is, is actually called In the Beginning, because those are the first words of the Scripture. John starts his gospel with a creation account the same way the Old Testament starts the, their, uh, the, the account with In the Beginning. Uh, there's a new thing coming to be. There's a new creation that's happening. Anyone love an origin story? Yeah, all right, a couple of you. I, I grew up loving Batman, right? And so the more, I know some of you are Superman fans, and it'll be okay. There'll be an altar call at the end, and you can come forward, right? And, and I've loved as people have tried to go back and, and articulate and express uh, the childhood of, of Bruce Wayne, right? This, uh, trying to art, uh, show what created this person, what created this thing. So whether it's Batman or like a Captain America the reality is Jesus has the best origin story. In fact, John can't tell us Jesus' origin. He just lets us know that Jesus was already there at the earth's origin. He reminds us that Jesus didn't have a beginning, but in the beginning, Jesus just was. So we're not talking about this new, like, oh man, and you know, you, you flip from Malachi and now all of a sudden you're in the New Testament and here's this new, this new guy named Jesus. John's reminding us that everything that we see, everything that has been created and currently is being created and never will be created, Jesus was there for all of it. 
John's Christmas story is not talking about the events of the night Jesus was born, but the spiritual and global reality of what Jesus' birth means to people like us. Every culture and people have found some creation or origin story to cling to. And here, we aren't giving uh, some kind of expression of any of those. Uh, we, don't, we aren't led to believe here that this could have been some accidental bang because it shows up as a present God. Jesus wasn't just godly. This says that he was God. Not an angel sent to creation. This is the person of God who was doing the creating. John chapter 1 verse 4 says, In him was life. And the life was brighter, sorry, the life was the light of men. What I love in this section is we get this firm, deep reminder that Jesus was both a life bringer and a light bearer. He showed up to bring life. Actually, in John 10 10, he reminds us that the enemy comes to, or the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But then he says, that's not what I came for. In fact, I came that you would have life, the same word, zoe, that you would have life and have it to the full. Now that verse has been misconstrued to let you know that so long as you come to church, when you walk out, uh, your car is going to automatically start the first time, right? Uh, That your bank account's going to get larger and blessings were just going to overflow over you. Uh, Maybe in some ways that's how God may remind you that he loves you and he sees you, but that's not what it's talking about. In fact, what it's letting us know is this zoe, it's the fullness of life, this overflowing uh, presence of, of who God is when he shows up to us, almost though as though there's death in us until Jesus comes to us, that life only arrives through him. And so when that life, that fullness of life shows up, we're led to believe that it can't be anything from this earth. He's a life bringer, not just having a pulse, but experiencing the fullness of overflowing living. John 10 says he came that people might have life and have it more abundant. Uh, Verse 316, he died so that people might have everlasting life. Chapter 6, he gave his flesh for the life of the world. Chapter 6, verse 53, only those who eat his flesh and drink his blood have life. Chapter 5, verse 40, and similarly, those, only those who come to him have life. Chapter 10, when he gives life, he stops them from perishing. Also in chapter 10, he said that he had power to lay down his life and to take it again. Chapter 5, the basic source of all life is the Father who has life in himself. And further down, but the Father granted the Son to have life in himself. He is life itself, the source of life and the giver of life. Which means without him, we've got. So these people walking in darkness, and we could say death, life has come. But not only does he bring life, he brings light. And here's what. He goes on, because throughout the Gospel of John, he uses this theme over and over. Christ is the light of the world. He has come into the world as light in chapter 12, chapter 8. Anyone who follows Jesus will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Don't forget, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 13, when God speaks, the first thing that happens is there was light. There's a revelation of God that when he shows up and speaks, light just follows into dark places. We live in a world with dark places. We live a life that still in some areas has some dark 
places that continually need the presence of the light and the life of Jesus. We need our lives to be in Christ because we need a new fullness of life in our dead, decaying selves. We need light in our darkness. We can prescribe it to society around us, but almost like Morpheus in the Matrix, sometimes we also need to take the pill. That while we're looking for specks in other eyes, maybe there's stuff in here that needs that light and life just as much. Chapter one, verse five, I love this verse. It says, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In fact, what that, uh, uh, that, that verb is, uh, you could read it probably better this way, the light keeps on shining in the darkness. It didn't shine once, it's a continual shine. The, the, the darkness does not exist by itself. There's a continual light from the Lord that's leading in. If you know anything about darkness, the presence of light automatically starts taken away from it. So long as God is there, darkness is not winning. The light keeps shining and darkness cannot subdue it. No matter how dark it gets, the light keeps on shining. It would be good for God's people to be reminded at the end of 2023 that no matter how dark it is, the light still shines. Verse 9, he says, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This true, right, this idea, this true, real, sincere, genuine. You may fabricate a light, and it looks like it's got duct tape, and it turns on sometimes. And you say, there it is. This is it. This is the answer, everybody, right? Uh, we live, uh, humans are great at this. I'm, I'm going to say we live in a time. Everyone's always lived in a time where everyone's trying to fabricate their own light source to use the imagery. But this is the true one. This is the real one. This is genuine light not made up or created. The goodness of this light isn't a distant thought or hopeful concept. It's coming here into this world to be with us. Verse 10, it says, he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. And here we find this concept where, man, Jesus just doesn't seem to fit not God's plan, not who he needed to be. He doesn't fit oftentimes what people think they need to be looking for. Steve Jobs is famous for telling a reporter, right? You don't give people what they want because people don't know what they want. You have to tell people what they want, right? Jesus comes in, God knowing, not how to fill everything that we wanted. Have you ever looked back at some of, your, some of our prayer requests are honest before the Lord, some of them, I look back, I'm like, man, I'm thankful God said no, right? Uh, there were relationships in high school that I thought was the one, you know what I mean? Like stuff where you're like, yeah, that was, thanks for that no, that was good, you know? Um, and it's like, I'm going to go do this. And then God's like, no, you're not. And it's like, I'm glad that didn't happen, you know? Why? Because God knows what we need, even though we're convinced what we want is what we need. Jesus was in the world. Not absent from it, not distant from it, not vacant from it. He was here. Some of us need to remind in our life that Jesus is here. The world was made through Jesus. We get this image. He was there at creation that, in fact, uh, as this word was being spoken, that the creation happened through him. But here's the crisis. God creates the world, and the world doesn't even acknowledge him. 
It says they don't know him, but that, that word there, gnosko, uh, it actually has this connotation. It's, it's uh, in other sections, it's kind of when they talk about a husband and wife that know each other. And if you know the Bible, you know what it means that they know each other, right? Uh, it's an intimate connection. What he's drawing them to is there's an understanding or, or, or a, um, a, a, a way of, of, of perceiving. There's a closeness that's missing. Jesus showed up and people missed him. And that doesn't fit unless the creation is so far from its creator that they don't know what they're looking for. Verse 11, it says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. The crisis gets worse. He came to his own people and they rejected him. How could the people who have carried this promise rejected the Messiah when he was right in front of them? The answer is I know too well, and so do you, because we've prayed for God to show up and do things, and God's shown up, and we just didn't see it. God's moved, and we missed it. God has spoke, and we didn't want to hear it, so we were looking for someone else to say something we liked better. It's not hard to understand how humans missed God. We still do it today. To me, this is one of the saddest parts of Jesus' story, that people longing and yearning for their Messiah missed him. We've got a misfit Joseph and Mary, misfit shepherd audience. Jesus doesn't fit. He wasn't what they were looking for. He didn't do what they wanted him to do. But thank goodness, I was taught in Bible college to look for the big butts in the Bible. What that means is, is when you get to this sad part where it's like, hey, he showed up and everybody missed him. Right, but check out verse 12. This is the but I'm talking about. But there were some who received him. But that's not the end of the story. It wasn't, the rejection isn't the part of the story that's powerful. It was the receiving that was. We are 2,000 years later across an ocean and a couple language barriers away from Jesus. And we're here because some received him. He says, but, all, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. This idea of believing, right, again, this confident faith, this allegiance in Jesus' whole person and his personality, that idea of his name, it's uh, the full embodiment of who he is, it's wrapped up in uh, the fullness of God. His teachings, his claims, his example, his expectation, when we yield ourselves up to him, we become the possession of Jesus for his glory. Not everyone rejected him. Of all the people who did receive him and believe in his name, he gives the right to become children of God. What we're reminded is, is there is an adoption process that's happening here by grace, through faith. Verse 13, it says, these children were, uh, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. These adopted children of God, it has nothing to do with our natural birth. It doesn't matter what your parents' last names were. It has nothing to do on this end. It has everything to do with who God is and what he's done. These adopted children of God have nothing to do with it. It's completely him. This is good news for those of us who are from misfit families or live in misfit situations or don't feel like you belong or that you're not enough. 
This new birth into a living hope is of God, not of humans. And here's where it all comes together in verse 14. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace, full of truth. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, this revelation of God. To be able to look at Jesus and know who God is. To be able to hear Jesus' teachings and know what God wants us to know. To be able to watch how he treats people and the kinds of people that he goes to. And to know the nature of God and how he moves around. Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrase sums it up this way, which I think is kind of fun. He says, the word became flesh and blood and it moved into the neighborhood. Get it? He showed up and moved in. And some of us don't like that. You get that revelation scene of the church in Laodicea where Jesus says, I stand at the door and I knock, and you're like, ooh, house is full, right? And get you a spot down at the double tree, right? Maybe that'll work. Uh, but, you know, I got a lot going on. I don't really want to move things around. It's like, no, no, no. Jesus showed up and he moved in. He dwelt among us. Uh, gives us this tabernacle imagery or temple imagery. He came and set up shop with us. And this reminder of like, you can't put him on the outside of camp. You can't move him off to the side. You don't get to show up to him whenever you want to. He's in the middle of all of it. And, and as he shows up, what we find is that it's powerful that you don't have to get to God because God came to be with us. It's not in your striving it's not in your desire. It's not because of what you want. It's because of him who came first. It says, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and full of truth. This idea of dwelling in glory, sometimes we miss it. It takes us back to places like Exodus and Deuteronomy. It puts us in places where the dwelling of God shows up in this tent. Literally, he tabernacled among us. The tabernacle before the temple was the traveling tent, the presence of God where the priests would go on behalf of God's people and offer these sacrifices or prayers and altars of incense. And that was God dwelling among his people. He went with them. Wherever they went, he was with them. Because wherever they went, they were following him as he went. Remember, there was this pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, and they followed it through the wilderness. Sometimes I wish God would just, like a little pillar would be nice, just so I know where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be doing. God, where are you and how do I find you? But in that, they would say, man, it's, it's the glory of God that shows up. Right? We hear this word, the Shekinah glory. This image that his presence rested on his house where he dwelled, in the temple where he came to be. What we have John retelling is a bit of a temple story. Except for this time, God didn't show up to dwell in a building, but he did come to dwell with his people. And he didn't show up behind a, a veil of the Holy of Holies. Don't forget the temple that Jesus is showing up to. Uh, they can't find, the, can't find the Ark of the Covenant. The piece of furniture that represents the presence of God is missing because in that temple we've got Jesus showing up who is the presence of God. He can't be in both places. 
He's either in the building or he's walking around with the people. We find here that he came and dwelt among us. I love that John gives us this image. He said, we laid eyes on Jesus. We saw him. We got to see his glory, the awe-filled weight of his glory, this idea, the heaviness of God, this, glo- this radiant glory of God. We got to be there for it. We got to see it. We watched him. The only son from the Father, full of grace and equally full of truth. Now, what I want us to look at this year as we go, how do we receive the misfit Messiah this Christmas? How do we make sure that we're not like the people who uh, said they were looking for him, but clearly weren't because they missed him? How do we make sure we're not like the world that he showed up to, that he showed up and nobody knew him? Kind of gives us that sound of Jesus saying, you know, you're going to say to me, Lord, Lord, I'm going to say I never knew you. Sometimes we know the language, we just don't know the Savior. And so he brings us back, and what I want to do is ask us, how do we make sure this Christmas, in the middle of everything going on, whether it's great darkness and loss, or whether you're in a spot where you feel like you're killing it in life and nothing can stop you, how do we stop in our tracks to simply just be reminded how deeply we need the Savior? First one is this. Jesus may not be what you want, but he's exactly who you need. It's a hard one to wrestle with because oftentimes we want Jesus to fit what we think he should be still. Here he is, God himself, fullness of God, light and life, stepping into darkness. Even though he made all of this, then we don't recognize him. He came here to be with this creation and we wanted nothing to do with him. That's the story John just told. Some of us treat Jesus, if I could be so bold, uh, the way that we can treat a hyperactive toddler. What I mean is, how come he's not doing what we ask him to do? Why is he doing things that we don't want him to do? Why is he making messes out of things we're trying to set up how I think they should go? Why is he always around? Can I get some time to myself to do what I want to do? Why does he expect everything to go his way? What about my way? But this is the word. And the word who was with God and the word who was God. And he was with God in the beginning and everything that was being made was made through him and nothing that's been made was made without him. He's not a nuisance. He's not just there when he fits our paradigm for what we think God should be and how we think he should act. We reorient our life to him, not asking him to reorient himself to us. Jesus didn't come to fix every perceived problem. He came to save you from your eternal problem. You might feel far from him, but man, if we read anything in Scripture, it's that he's pursuing you. He came, he became human, and he came here. That's a longer step than anything you're going to have to take. But he didn't come to please people. He came to save them. He didn't come to make us happy. He came to make us holy. He didn't come to make us better. He came to make us alive again. Would you stop looking for the Savior you prefer, who fits your profile, who solves your problems, and is summoned and dismissed like some kind of butler? The Savior you want will fix nothing. Would you run to Jesus, the Messiah, who's what we need 
Second one is this, if we're gonna receive the misfit Messiah this Christmas, Jesus is our invitation and our adoption into God's family. Here's what gets us into trouble here. We're usually in one of two ways. One, we think we're unacceptable to him, right? That there's nothing that can save me from who I am and what I've done, and we've come to believe that we're too far gone. Or the second is that we're entitled to him, that we deserve to be here. I deserve him to do what I want, right? Do you know how many Bible studies I've go to? God, can I cash some of those chips in because I deserve this? Do you know how many hours I've served? Do you know how much money I gave? Do you know how good I've done? And we list all these things. I'm entitled for you to do something that I want you to do. Your invitation and adoption is Jesus. And he says to us, come. No one did nothing, but Jesus did everything. It doesn't matter if you've been a good person. Karma means nothing here. Not about your family or other people's opinions. This isn't about your ideas or your feelings. This is about receiving Jesus as your Savior, your Lord, and your King, believing in His name, the fullness of who He is, accepting His claims and following His teachings. That through Him, that's how God saves It's our invitation to adoption to be sons and daughters of God. Fully understanding we don't belong here, but praise God that we get to be invited. The last one I want us to look at is this. Because if we're going to receive Christ, it's really important for us to pay attention to the fact that he showed up to us. And as we keep reading the Gospel of John, we find out that he also wants to show up through us. Not just so that we have him, we know him, we walk around with a bunch of Bible information and we say, we got this, but so that the life that he lives gets imparted and shown out through the life that we live. When Jesus shows up, he transforms us and moves us out of our comfort zones to dwell among people that he sent us to serve. And guess what? Those people he sent us to serve are just like we were before we were in Christ. They are walking in darkness. And sometimes we complain more than we show up. I'm grateful Jesus didn't sit with his arms crossed at the throne going, oh, these guys. Can you imagine? I'm grateful that even in my faults, in my perspective and how I view the world, that that's not how God is. That his ways are not my ways and his thoughts are not my thoughts. In fact, they are higher than all of that. I'm glad God doesn't act like me. Jesus shows up. Shows up, walks in. Sometimes it's easier for us to move away, to step away, to ignore, to even become cynical of the darkness around us, if we're following the light of life, then what we're left with is a reminder that light shines in the darkness. Jesus teaches in his Sermon on the Mount that you're the light of the world. City on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither does anybody light a lamp and put it under a bowl. No, they put it in the highest point of the house so it gives light to all of it. And we know that verse, but do we live it? Jesus showed up 
and showed out. But then he comes to people who put him under a bowl and wonder why everything's so dark. I love this story. In 1926, in Beverly Hills, California, there was a woman by the name of Mary Clark who was born to a wealthy family in the middle of a booming, starstruck California. Probably like everybody else in California at the time, she was married and divorced a couple times. Seven children. And in the 1950s, she decides that she wants to become a nun. But the Catholic Church won't accept her into any order because she's been divorced twice. So she starts her own ministry. And moves and serves in La Mesa Maximum Security Prison in Tijuana, Mexico. Woman with everything who's seen the brokenness of all of it completely crashed down. And what she does is she moves into the prison. She provides blankets and medicine. Mind you, this is maximum security, so we're not talking about people who took a Snickers. She shows up, provides blankets, medicine, and any other needs to the prisoners. What's most impressive about her story is that she ends up actually moving into the prison living in a 10 by 10 prison cell. Nasty food, disgusting bathrooms. She called her prisoners her sons. She adopted them, took them in to be her own. Not talking about how bad they'd been or what they'd done or what got them in there or trying to convince them of how terrible they were. She made her dwelling among them. She moved in and entered into their lives. She helped conflicts between prisoner to prisoner and oftentimes between officer and prisoner. And in 2008, if you can do the math, if she was born in uh, 26, she's old. And in 2008, a riot breaks out in the most dangerous cells revolt for unfair treatment, poor conditions, and no water. Inmates take over and the entire prison goes on lockdown. As her sons called her, Madre Antonia, 82 years old, goes to the military who's ready to go in with guns and just take care of it and says, I need to go see my sons. The warden agrees that it's their best shot. The prisoners discover her in the darkness of the blackout and form a human shield while getting her to the prisoners responsible for the riot. When she gets there, She tells them, I can help get water, I can help get fair treatment, I can uh, make them put down their weapons. And their response was, when we heard you were coming, we already threw them out the window. She made her dwelling among the suffering to make things a little bit more right. When Jesus moved in, he helped us see, hear, understand and seek clarity on what it means to live by faith. That there's an incarnation of Jesus that as we follow him, we start to incarnate it. How does Jesus show up, not just to my life, but through my life? 
Is my marriage affected because Jesus is Lord over my life? Do my kids get a better dad because Jesus has saved me? Does my neighborhood change because a light-bearing follower of Christ lives there? Do the people that we complain and are cynical about and, 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 and belittle, do they get an advocate and someone who loves them, who calls them sons and daughters, because someone who's following Jesus is showing them what it means to be the light of life. Tim Keller says this, the emphasis on light and darkness comes from the Christian belief that the world's hope comes from outside of it. We've tried everything here, it doesn't work. It had to be from somewhere else, but it didn't stay somewhere else. It put on flesh and made its dwelling among us. Jesus didn't come just to make bad people good, he came to make dead people come to life. You may not think you want him, but I promise you that you need him. Jesus didn't come to save us from the pain and chaos of our lives, though that time will come when there will be no more mourning or crying or pain. He did come and move in and suffer with us to make things a little bit more right. And we wait between his coming to be with us at Christmas and his return and makes all things right for the rest of eternity. Would you stop searching for any other option? When the God who loves you came for you and died for you has already extended an invitation for you to be his for eternity. This doesn't require a portion of your life on Sundays if you have time. This requires that we give our lives to become what, to give our lives because he came and gave his life for us. What I'd love to encourage you this Christmas is simply this, is no matter what kind of darkness you're living into, a light has come. Uh, no matter how difficult it might seem to be to see through it, uh, the darkness can't overcome it. It's that good and it's that powerful. Jesus is maybe not all the time what we think we're looking for when we're looking for a solution or a savior but he's 100% what we need at any given time for the rest of eternity. I want to encourage us as we celebrate Christmas tomorrow, as we remember Jesus showing up to be with us and to live among us, that in him is the light of life. And that because God loved this world, that he sent his son that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but instead we would have eternal life. And my challenge for us this Christmas is this, is would we, would we as a way, right? We, we know the, the, the wise men brought gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Romans reminds us, Paul's writing, where he says all God's looking for is that we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, that that's our spiritual way of worshiping him. Uh, maybe the best gift that we can give this year is to put our lives back up on the altar and say, Lord, maybe I've claimed your name, but I've been walking in darkness. Maybe I've perceived a dark world in a way that you don't. So Father, I'm putting myself back up on the altar and saying, God, would you let me be the light? Not under a bowl where no one could see it. God, would you put me in a place? Would you put me around people? God, would you help me show up to the dark places so that your light can shine? Would you stand as we pray?
Father, we are reminded of your goodness. We're reminded of your beauty. Father, we're reminded of how good we have it in you. Uh, Lord, my prayer is this, uh, is that we would be reminded that uh, this Christmas account and this Christmas story does not happen in a vacuum of time. It shows up to a time where Isaiah reminds us where there was great darkness and people walking in it. Father, as we look around at the people around us who are walking in darkness, would you remind us that we have bent our knee and surrendered to King Jesus, who is the light bearer and the life bringer. And as we follow him, Father, would you use people like us to show people what that looks like in us so that you could work through us as you bring people to yourself. Father, this year, would we at the manger bow a knee and worship and be thankful that the word put on flesh and made its dwelling among us. Father, we've seen your glory in Jesus. And Father, would you remind us again how much we need him. It's in his name we pray, amen.